Well, good morning. Good to see you today. If you have a Bible with you, please turn to the book of Genesis, chapter 1. Genesis, chapter 1. Uh, in just a couple minutes here, uh, after I set it up, we'll be reading uh, just verses 26 and 27. Uh, Genesis, chapter 1, starting in verse 26. Let's go ahead and pray first. Lord, we do thank you. We thank you, Father, for your grace poured out to us in and through Jesus Christ, our great high priest. We believe that we do have a perfect high priest over the house of God. We believe, Father, that we can come boldly through Christ to the throne of grace to find grace and mercy to help in a time of need, that we can come boldly through the veil that is His flesh, which was torn open for us. We can come boldly through the sprinkling of the blood of Christ. And so we come, Father, this morning. We come boldly. And we ask, Father, for grace and for mercy as we open Your Word. Lord, that You would, you would uh, fill us with Your Spirit. We pray, Father, that by Your Spirit You would enlighten our hearts I pray, Father, that the truth of Your Word would not stop in our minds. Father, we know Your Word was... You didn't intend for Your Word just to stop in our minds. But for the truth of Your Word to go through our minds and hit our affections deep in our soul. So I pray, Father, through Your Word, You'd grip our affections this morning. And Father, we would be lifted up to find our joy in You, that we would truly taste and see that You are good. Father, You're the only one who can do it by Your Spirit. We pray that You would now. We thank You for it. In the name of Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. Uh, as, we, as we start the new year here in these first few Sundays here in January, we're doing a little bit of a vision refresh. We're kind of just recasting the vision for our church. Why, why does this church exist? What, what do we believe that God has called us to do in and through this local church? Uh, if you've ever split wood before with an axe, um, then you know that if you want to get anything accomplished, you have to actually sharpen the axe occasionally, or you won't get anything done. And, and that's kind of how it goes with a local church. You, you, you have to sharpen the axe from time to time. You have to clarify again the vision for your local church, the direction of your local church. Uh, John Piper says all the time that we have a leaky vision bucket. Uh, as, as soon as you understand the vision of your church, your, your vision bucket is all full. You, you got it. Uh, well, then you quickly start to lose it. And two weeks later, you don't remember the vision of your church. You don't remember why your church actually exists. So we're taking a couple Sundays here to do a vision refresh. Just kind of sharpen the proverbial axe of fill up that vision bucket once again. Uh, Pastor Thomas started the series last week. Just a quick recap of what he covered. Here's the mission statement for our church. If you put it up on the screen there, it goes like this. What is our mission statement? We aim to make disciples of Jesus through gospel-centered community on mission for the glory of God 
and the joy of all peoples. You can just leave that up for a while. Uh, What do we aim to do here as a local church family? It's really pretty simple. Uh, Kind of the center of the bullseye is we want to make disciples, disciples of Jesus. And what is a disciple? You know, many churches say, hey, we want to make disciples. Well, that begs the question, what is a disciple? What are you aiming to make? And we would say that according to the book of John, a disciple is a worshiper, a servant, and a missionary. A disciple is someone who worships Jesus, someone who is also a servant like Jesus, and someone who is also a missionary for Jesus. And and that's what we want to make in and through this local church. We want to make worshiping servant missionaries. Or we we want to make disciples. And, and, And why do we aim to make disciples? Well, simply because Jesus commanded us to do it. Uh, Matthew chapter 28, just before he ascended back into heaven, man, that pivotal moment in human history, Jesus looked out at his disciples and he said, go and make disciples of all nations. He commanded us to, to make disciples. And, and what does that mean for us to make disciples? Well, that includes both unbelievers and also believers. When we go to make disciples, we aim to bring unbelievers to faith in Christ, but we also aim to, to bring fellow believers to maturity in Christ. Making disciples involves both salvation and sanctification. You seek to bring people to faith in Christ and also seek to mature people in Christ. We want to bring people from A to Z in the Christian faith. And and you can see in our mission statement there how we aim to make disciples in our church. We aim to make disciples through gospel-centered community on mission. And there are three very important words there uh, in that mission statement. Gospel, community, and mission. Those three things, gospel, community, and mission, you'll hear us talk about those a lot. Those three things are critical when it comes to making disciples. Those three things are three of the primary elements or priorities in a gospel or in a disciple making church. And for three Sundays here, we're just focusing in on each of those three things. Thomas looked last week at that, that word gospel what it means to be gospel-centered. The gospel is simply the good news message about Jesus. Uh, The gospel is is the good news message of what God has done through Jesus to save sinners like you and me and also to restore his broken universe. Uh, and, And it's that gospel message that God uses to save unbelievers. You hear that gospel message about Jesus for the first time, or maybe you've heard it a thousand times, but you finally get it, and you finally put your faith in Christ, and you begin to follow Christ, and the Bible says that you are then saved. You're saved from your sin. You're saved from a future eternal hell. You are saved to a future heaven with God. But listen, it's also that gospel message that God uses to sanctify believers. Uh, Tim Keller says that you're saved the first time you believe the gospel, but then you are sanctified 
as you believe the gospel more and more. So if we want to make disciples as a local church, if we want to see people both saved and sanctified, well then we need to be a church that is centered on the gospel. We need to be a church that preaches the gospel relentlessly from this pulpit. And that is what we try to do. From every single book in the Bible, you should be hearing about Jesus and the message of Jesus Christ. We we need to study the gospel in our classes and in our life groups. We, We need to learn how to gospel one another, how to simply encourage one another daily in those precious gospel truths about Christ. We need to learn how to share the gospel with the lost, those who have not yet heard about Jesus. Making disciples through the gospel. That's the the first primary uh, disciple-making element or priority in our mission statement there. And today now, I want to focus for just a few minutes on that second uh, element or priority, that word community. We aim to make disciples through gospel-centered community. You know, you think about that word community, that, that word community has begun, it has become a kind of a buzzword in our culture. There are so many things now in our culture that have the word community attached to them. Uh, you, you might hear people talk about the academic community or, or hear people talk maybe about the farming community. Uh, I just heard this last week that there is now an official Fitbit community. Uh, for those of you that want to join that Fitbit community, it now exists for you. Uh, there was even recently a TV sitcom named Community. The word seems to be everywhere, but we didn't grab that word community and put it in our mission statement just because it's a popular word or just because it sounds cool uh, to have it in there. No, community is actually a very deep and rich biblical concept. It's a theme that you can find traced throughout the entire Bible. I, I have three points for you today concerning biblical community as we think about community here. First point is this, number one. We were created for community. We were created for community. You and I, as human beings, we were created by God to be in very close community or very close fellowship with other human beings. You were created for community. In Genesis 1 here, God has just created the world, just created the universe as we know it, and he's now preparing to create mankind. And look at what he says here in verse 26. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created them male and female. He created them. So, God, you you think about him here before creating the human race. God God wanted human beings. He, He wanted you and me. He wanted us to reflect him in some way on this this earth. He, he wanted us to reflect in some way his nature and his own character. He wanted us to be like him in, in some way. 
So God created us, it says, in his own image, after his own likeness. And now, believe it or not, you, you act and look a little like the God of this universe in the way you think, in the way you communicate, in the way you experience emotion. You know, you think about a penny, if any of you still have any of those laying around <laughs> anywhere, uh, you think about a penny, that penny has been stamped with the image of Abe Lincoln, and the face of that penny, the side of that penny now kind of looks like Abe Lincoln, and you have been stamped with the very image of God. And you now look a little like God himself in the way you think and reason and communicate and in the way you emote. But man, please notice that when God wanted to create man in his own image, please notice this, he didn't then create just one person. He didn't then create just one man. Or one woman in isolation or in independence. No, God created multiple persons and he put them in very close community with one another. And why did God do that? Why did he create multiple persons in community? Well, here's one of the primary reasons. Because that's who God is. That's who God is. If you think about it. God, in His essential nature and being, God is multiple persons in community. It's called the Trinity. It's one God, yes. But multiple persons in that one Godhead. Father, Son, Holy Spirit existing in the closest of community. Existing for all eternity in deep, intimate fellowship with one another. Knowing one another. Serving one another. Loving one another intimately. God is persons in community. And God wanted to create man in His own image to reflect Him. So what did God do? God created multiple persons and put them in close community with one another. A beautiful reflection of God's own being. Did you see what God said there in Genesis 1.26? He said, let us make man in our image. Let us, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, make man in our image. And God then made multiple persons in close community just like him. Do you know what God did at creation? He made multiple persons one, unified, just like him. A glorious reflection of the Trinity. Do you realize that you do not reflect the image of God very well as an isolated, independent human being? You do not reflect the image of God well all by yourself. We reflect the image of God in a glorious manner when we are together. All of the different gifts, all the different strengths, the different personalities we have, one, unified, reflecting God Himself. You, as a human being, you were created for community. 
You were created by God to live, not in isolation and independence from other human beings. No, you were created to live in close fellowship with other human beings. I know that's not a very suburban thing to say. (laughs) You don't move to the suburbs to be close to other people. You move to the suburbs to get away from other people. Build your big privacy fence around your home. Just me and my personal Jesus. But that's not the way God... God created us to live. No, He created us to live in fellowship. Donald McLeod says this. He says, The fact that we bear the image of God means that we are made for fellowship. This is probably the most important point of all in the creation. As bearers of God's image, we are made for witness. As God Himself observed, it is not good for the man to be alone. There is a social life in the Godhead itself. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit live in community and fellowship. The same must be true of us. We are made to live face to face with others of our own kind. A life lived apart from community is a life that violates human nature. Thus, number one, we are created for community. Number two, we are redeemed into community. We are redeemed into community. You know, you think of Adam and Eve when God first created them there in the Garden of Eden. Man, they experienced a perfect community with one another. Sinless for a time, a close, a rich, a robust fellowship, knowing and being known intimately, uh, serving one another, loving one another, that, that they were one like the Trinity. But they lost that community. They, they sinned against God. And when they did, their perfect community with God was now destroyed. A sin barrier now between them and God. But their perfect community with one another was also now destroyed. A sin barrier now between human beings. Conflict. Blaming one another. Throwing one another under the proverbial bus. The entire human race there in the fall, in the Garden of Eden, the entire human race now essentially became a bunch of isolated, independent loners. No longer a rich fellowship between people, a beautiful reflection of the Trinity, but now isolated and and alone and, and independent. A very poor reflection of the Trinity. After the fall in the Garden of Eden, there's this new dividing wall of hostility, the Bible says. A dividing wall of hostility in our world between people groups, between east and west, or between north and south. Dividing walls between rich and and the poor, or conservatives and, and liberals. Dividing walls between black and white and Hispanic and Indian. Divided homes, divided towns, divided families, divided marriages. But here's the great news. Jesus Christ came to restore our human community. 
Jesus came to restore our human community. Jesus came to restore our community with God. Yes, he did. Man, he took our sin upon himself. He died for that sin. And now every human who trusts in Christ for forgiveness of sin, every human who does that is now brought into a peaceful relationship with God. The sin barrier between God and man now gone because of Christ. Please don't stop there. So many American Christians, that's all they know about Jesus and the cross. Well, it's just me and my personal Jesus, me and my personal salvation. He saved me. I'll live however I want, independent, isolated from other believers. Man, don't stop there because Jesus didn't come just to restore your your community with God. He also came to restore your community with other human beings. A full-orbed gospel message You know what? Jesus saves you. When he does save you, when you put your faith in Christ, do you know that Jesus saves you? He redeems you into a community. He redeems you into the community of believers, the church, the body of Christ. Listen, as a Christian now, well, God the Father, your Father, He wants you to live in close community. He wants you to live in close community with other believers within your local church family. It's good to have a community of friends out there on Facebook that you connect with regularly, but God's design is that you would live in community with the other believers in your local church family. Not just a deep fellowship with Him, but also a deep fellowship with other believers. And please listen. Community is something you need to commit to as a Christian. You just need to commit to it. You just need to commit to it. You know, the early Christians, after Jesus ascended back to heaven, the early Christians committed themselves to close fellowship with one another. Acts 2.42 says says this about the early Christians. It says they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers, and all who believed were together and had all things in common, and they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together, And breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all of the people. If you just look at verse 2 there, if you can back that up for a second. You look at verse 42 there. Verse 42 there says that the early Christians devoted themselves. It means they gave themselves. They committed themselves to four different things. Number one, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching or to the Word of God. Number two, they devoted themselves to the breaking of bread, down the line a little bit. So they committed themselves to probably the Lord's Supper, also to eating together in one another's homes. That's the second thing. Number three, they devoted themselves to prayer. And you can also see there that they devoted themselves to the fellowship or the communion of saints. 
as the Apostles' Creed says. The Greek word there for fellowship, it's the word koinonia. You may have heard that before. The word koinonia means participating or sharing. These early Christians devoted themselves, committed themselves to participating in one another's lives. They devoted themselves to sharing in one another's lives and in one another's things. That is true community or fellowship. It's a deep and rich sharing or participation in the lives of the other believers in your local church family. I've said this before. In the church where I grew up, they would talk about fellowship occasionally. But fellowship boiled down to uh, one weekly fellowship meal in this room in the church building that was called the fellowship hall. And if you went to the meal, well, you were in deep fellowship with the other Christians. And I hated the meal, so I guess I really didn't like fellowship that much as an early Christian. But listen, fellowship is so much more than just a weekly meal in a fellowship hall. True fellowship, true community. It is a deep sharing or participating in one another's lives. Knowing one another intimately. Serving one another, caring for one another, supporting, encouraging, convicting at times one another, loving one another. Considering the other is more significant than yourself. You know know what true biblical community is? Think Trinity. Think Trinity. The relationships that exist between the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. You know, if you go to Jesus' high priestly prayer in John chapter 17, you know one of the things He prays for Christians? Oh, Father, let them be one as you and I are one. You know what he's praying for? Community. Fellowship. Garden of Eden. Community. The community that we were originally created to experience. Let them be one. Let them participate. Let them share in one another's lives. Like you, Father. Like you and I do. And the early Christians, they devoted themselves to fellowship or community. And, and please hear me. You should too. If you're a follower of Christ, you should commit yourself, devote yourself to fellowship, community. Please hear me. Don't just devote yourself to the Word and prayer. Yes, so good, the apostles' teaching and prayer, but it's more than that. It's devoting yourself also to the communion of saints within your local church body. Jerry Bridges says this, spiritual Fellowship involves mutual commitment and responsibility. We must commit ourselves to faithfulness in getting together. We must commit ourselves to openness and honesty with one another. Commit ourselves to confidentiality in what is shared. We must assume the responsibility to encourage and admonish and pray for one another. Spiritual fellowship means that we watch out for one another, feeling a mutual responsibility for each other's welfare. God wants all of His people, and please hear me, extrovert and introvert. 
it doesn't matter. <laughs> he wants all of us to devote ourselves to rich and robust community within our local church. Now, that might look a little different for introverts and extroverts. Please don't use that as your excuse. Because if you're using the introvert excuse to keep you from fellowship, guess what that's called? Sin. Pure and simple. That's all it is. God wants all of his people, all of us to devote ourselves to fellowship. Number one, we were created for community. Number two, we are redeemed into community. And lastly, number three, we are transformed in community. We are transformed in community. Do you know that in your Christian life, God wants to to mold you increasingly into the image of Jesus. God wants to sanctify you progressively over time. And, And contrary to what a lot of Christians today believe, sanctification does not happen in isolation from other Christians. Sanctification does not happen in isolation for other, from other Christians. It, it just doesn't. And we, we want to think it does. I'll just spend my life kind of in my own home, doing my own thing at work. I'll, I'll read a couple good Christian books, just me and, and my family, and I'll be sanctified. No, you won't. Man, it's so good as a believer to get that time alone with Jesus in solitude. yes. But sanctification does not happen in isolation from other believers. Sanctification happens in close community with other believers. Tim Challey says this. I'm sure lots of other people say it. Sanctification is a community project. The bulk of your sanctification as a Christian, it will happen in close face-to-face fellowship with other believers, not just in here on Sunday morning, but out there in the normal stuff of, of life, rubbing shoulders with other believers from your church family, slowly being molded through that rubbing, slowly being molded through that friction at times into the image of Jesus. Proverbs 27, 17 says this. It says, iron sharpens iron, and one man sharpens another. And that's how sanctification works. One piece of iron, <laughs> one believer rubs up against another. Uh, friction, occasionally. Uh, if you put, guess what happens? If you put two sinners together for too long, you get what is called sparks. (laughs) And God knows it. And so God says, be together, Christians, because I want to see the sparks come up from deep inside your heart. You see, it's through that rubbing, iron against iron on a daily basis, out there in the normal stuff of life. It's out there where iron sharpens iron. Believers are molded into the image of Christ. Sanctification is a community project. We were created for community. We are redeemed into community, and we are transformed in community. Listen, a a close 
a, a robust fellowship or community among believers in a local church family that is absolutely critical for the health of the believers in that church family. You cannot grow to maturity apart from that close community with other believers. So you just stop and think about it then. Okay, if biblical community is important for us as Christians, what does that look like exactly? To, to be in some sort of biblical community with other Christians within my church family. Well, I, I think for starters, it means that people are simply together. They're, they're simply together, not just in here on Sundays, but actually committed. Devoted to being together to some degree out there throughout the week. That's one thing we see with the early, the early Christians. Acts 2 says repeatedly that they were together. They were in the temple together. They were eating bread. They were eating meals together in one another's homes. They were committed to being together. Not just a bunch of isolated individual Christians coming together for one service a week, but they were doing life together to some degree. Jerry Bridges says that that Greek word koinonia, which is translated as fellowship in the Bible, he says that the Greek word koinonia could also be translated as sharing a common life. And that's fellowship. It's not just sharing a coffee in a fellowship hall once a week. It's sharing a common life out there. Dietrich Bonhoeffer wrote a book on community called Life Together. And that's community. We talk a lot in our church about living life on life together. Just being together out there at times in the normal stuff of life. It's not always easy to do. We all have busy lives. We all have schedules. And many times our schedules don't intersect. It's difficult. But, but you're committed to it. You, you devote yourself to being together with other believers in your local church. And that's how you're transformed with other believers. You know, I, man, I grew up and I just would hear all the time people quote that verse from Proverbs, iron sharpens iron, man, iron sharpens iron. But then they're never together, except on Sunday mornings. Listen, if you take a knife and another knife and you put them in opposite drawers in your kitchen until Jesus returns, guess what? They're not going to sharpen each other. But that's how we want to live our lives in our own separate little drawers, hardly ever coming together. And we want to say iron sharpens iron. How does iron sharpens iron? You put them together and they rub. And over time, they may make some sparks True community can be messy because the underlying stuff in your heart is exposed. And we don't like community because of what it does in our hearts and lives. We need that stuff to be exposed. So God says iron and iron get together and rub against each other so that I can transform you into the image of Jesus. That's how he transforms his people. Man, I remember going to a life group overnight retreat. I set this thing up. It was in our first year or so of life groups. I didn't think through the retreat very well because we ended up with, I think, 10 adults and 13 kids in a uh, very small house with uh, one bathroom. And I can tell you that within about 12 hours, my sin was coming to the surface. <laughs> it was there. And I thought, man, this retreat was such a dumb idea. You know what? The retreat was a great idea because it exposed my heart where other people could see the true me. 
and they could love me and serve me and help me. That, that's how it works. So if every time you get uncomfortable around other believers, you leave, you're, 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 you're stunting your own sanctification. That's what you're doing. Bob Thune and Will Walker, they say this. Did you ever notice how patient you are? As long as no one is getting on your nerves. Or how loving you are. As long as you're surrounded by people easy to love. Or how humble you are. As long as you're respected and admired by others. Every one of us is a saint in isolation. It's in community that our real weaknesses, flaws, and sins are exposed. That's why community is essential, not optional for transformation. We cannot become the people God wants us to become outside of community. Biblical community. It means being together to some degree. And it also then means practicing the one another scriptures in the Bible. You know, if you go through the New Testament books, there are some 59 one another scriptures. Love one another, forgive one another, correct one another, and, and so on. And, and you cannot possibly fulfill all of those verses just in here on a Sunday morning. Listen, if all you ever do is see the people from your, ch- your, your church on Sunday morning, guess what? You're probably not going to have to forgive them all that much because we all come in here and act like we're not sinners. <laughs> you don't see the sin you've got to forgive. But man, if you are with believers out there 24-7, you will see sin and you will then get to practice forgiving one another. That's where we do it out there, sharing a common life. Biblical community is the place where we can practice those one another scriptures. That's true biblical community. And true biblical community also involves the confession of sin to one another. James 5.16 says that we are to confess our sin not just to God, but to one another. Community involves being together. It includes those one another scriptures. It includes the confession of sin. And true biblical community, it's also centered on the gospel. Man, in true biblical fellowship, you don't just shoot the breeze all the time. Though that is a part of fellowship. But you don't just shoot the breeze all of the time. No, you also constantly point one another to the gospel. You study the gospel together, whatever that might look like for you. Or just talk about what God is doing in your life to encourage a brother or sister. We learn how to gospel one another as we're making a dinner in in the kitchen or as we're out at a ball game or something. You hear the pain in somebody's life and you bring the gospel truth to that person. Jesus has paid it all. He's paid it all. We learn to gospel one another in community as we share our common life. True biblical community is gospel-centered. And you know what happens when you practice that type of true biblical community? You know what happens when you, you commit to being together to some degree out there? When you, when you seek to do those one another scriptures, when you seek to confess sin to one another? You, you know what happens when you gospel one another? You make disciples of one another. You make disciples of one another in obedience to Christ's command. You know what you're doing? You're making disciples the way Jesus did it. Not just in a classroom, but along the road in the stuff of life. Iron sharpening iron. And that takes me back to our mission statement, the simple vision 
for our church. What do we aim to do here? We aim to make disciples of Jesus through gospel-centered community. The primary place where you can practice uh, biblical community, the primary place in our local church, it's in our life groups. Now, you can do community in our church in other ways, but our life groups are the primary way. Those life groups are set up to be gospel-centered communities. People who share life together to some degree, it's difficult at times, share life, confess sin together. Uh, you, you, you gospel one another. That's what our life groups are set up to be. Not all of our life groups are as healthy as other groups. Listen, no community is perfect. Community is messy. Your life group will be messy. Your life group will be messy. Your life group will be messy. And it's through that mess that God is sharpening you, transforming you into the image of Jesus Christ. If you're interested in finding out more about life groups, you just tap me on the shoulder or tap Pastor Thomas on the shoulder, but that is the aim of our life groups to make disciples through gospel-centered community. So that's the second primary disciple-making element that's in our mission statement, first gospel and now community. I'll talk next Sunday about the third, about mission. And to kind of close this up here, one of the things we've wanted to do through this vision series is give a few people opportunity to share testimonies, uh, give people the opportunity just to, to share some of the ways they've I- been impacted by these various themes of gospel, community, and mission. We heard from Arielle Swenson last week. Thank you so much for sharing, just hearing about how she's been impacted by the gospel. And today I'd like to go ahead and ask Sam and Grace Jang up front here. Sam, Sam and Grace, you can go ahead and make your way up. <clears throat> A lot of you have seen Sam and Grace for a long time, man. We are so thankful for the Jangs, for the Jangs. They, they um, for those of you who don't know, have been very faithful members of our church almost from the very uh, start of our church. Um, I remember them coming into Central Park uh, just shortly after we planted the church. They've served in so many helpful ways in our church family, and we want to allow Sam and Grace a few minutes to talk on this theme of community and maybe how it's impacted their lives. Thank you. looks a lot different from here than back there. Um, yeah, my name is Sam. This is my wife, Grace, and our kids are Andy, Lydia, and uh, Clara. They're much older now than when we first came here. So, yeah, just, yeah, this is not my thing, so bear with me. So I'd like to ask Grace to share her story first, and then I'll share mine. All right. I'm terrible at public speaking, <laughs> and I get nervous. So I wrote everything down. So please forgive me if I'm just reading off the paper. Um, All right. um, uh, So community at CRC has been (laughs) has been um, so instrumental in the way God God has been working on my heart. What's wrong with me? (laughs) Sorry. In the last few years, one of the most important ways that God has worked in my heart has been through weekly DNA meetings with ladies, both in our first small group and then in life group. It's been so good, so encouraging, and oftentimes life-giving to meet regularly and confess my struggles and what's been going on in my week. (laughs) Uh, So many times when I felt um, discouraged, worried, stressed, depressed, frustrated, sick and tired, whatever it was, uh, before we met, I would come back just feeling encouraged by God's word, loved by God and loved by these ladies, thankful uh, for, 
things that I had just been overlooking, encouraged by their stories of God's grace in their lives, and overall just rejuvenated for the next day. It's crazy how uh, just almost from the get-go, I felt like I bonded with these ladies and really loved every single one of them. Uh, I'm sure a big part of that was knowing we were on the same journey to grow in our faith together and having Jesus as the common bond, and knowing I could just tell them anything without fear of judgment. Also, when we first started in life groups, we began with sharing our life stories with one another. It was challenging because it took a lot of time, often more than one to two hours per person, so only one person could share each time we gathered. It took us till like December <laughs> before everyone had shared, but this helped so much to really feel like I knew each person where they're coming from, uh, even though we had just been meeting for a few months. <clears throat> I was raised in a Christian home and background and was born into a, a very tight-knit church in Chicago right up until we joined the CRC community. There were a lot of good things about this church I grew up in, but also a lot of unhealthy things, too. Um, some of the good things, everyone lived within walking distance from the church, often sh even sharing a duplex or apartment complex. It was almost like every single person in the church was part of my family, and we saw each other a lot. It was through this church that I received Christ as my Savior while I was in high school and first began seeing my sins in light of the gospel. And for this, I'm so thankful. However, um, though in my head I knew that I was saved by Christ alone, through faith alone, in reality, the way I and probably many around me lived was, as Pastor Brett often says, do good to be good. In our church, we were judged by our external visible fruit. For example, how many newcomers we brought to Bible study or Sunday services each week. They actually tracked it. We had to write and share testimonies every week in our fellowships. They were called fellowship meetings, and in which there should always be a clear, uh, repent, clear repentance topic and then prayer topics and decisions. Seems good, but when I look back now, one thing I realized was that almost never in my life unless I was caught, did I ever confess or confront sin while I was in the middle of struggling with it. I always struggled privately in my own head, usually for a long time, feeling super guilty and yet powerless and unwilling to change. Then sometimes, and only after it was over and I had repented or it was no longer relevant, did I actually share about it and confess what I'd been struggling with. This pattern of dealing with my sin persisted for much of my life. Even though our church family was close and we met together really often, I would not say now that this was a truly healthy community for me in terms of authenticity and sharing struggles and confessing sins. But after moving here and becoming a part of CRC, hearing the gospel preached so clearly week in and week out, for which I'm so grateful to our pastors here. And then meeting with small groups and then life groups weekly to practice these principles, God slowly helped me to begin to practice confessing sin publicly, sometimes even when I hadn't intended to, which is totally a testament to the work of God and not of myself. I remember several times where I was struggling with issues uh, in DNA meetings, but not ready to share about it. I was feeling frustrated or angry, but I wasn't even sure exactly why. Sometimes I couldn't even put words to my situation. But in the process of sitting there and talking, uh, one of them would trigger something or just keep asking how I'm doing, or, and things would eventually just start spilling out. God used these ladies to bring to the light struggles that I had wanted to keep hidden and was ashamed of. And it was so freeing to confess and hear the gospel spoken back to me in encouraging ways. Recently, I was able to see in such a clear contrast life in community with believers versus alone. The day before Thanksgiving, Annika broke her foot and ankle. And then on Thanksgiving Day, 
So one day later, my brother-in-law broke his clavicle in two places at the park right behind my house. I was able to be with Annika a couple times in the following weeks just to help a little with Sammy, but she didn't even need me that much because she was surrounded by so many in this church, bombarding her with offers to help. On the other hand, my heart really ached for my sister, who was in a really difficult time already, even before this, and now had this to add to her troubles. And not only could I not be there to help because she lived so far away, but to make things worse, she had no church community around her with whom she could confide her struggles or receive any counsel or practical help or care. It was such a drastic difference, and I could really see how God's design is so perfect, how he created us not to live in isolation, but to live in biblical community. There have definitely been challenges in doing life together, and we're definitely not there yet in our life group. Everyone's busy, and in our life group, we're also in different stages um, with each family. Our older two are are older than the rest of our families, and coordinating schedules is admittedly sometimes a little crazy. (laughs) Um, Some of the ways we've dealt with that, we sometimes do DNA just two by two if we can't find a common time for everyone. We switch up the days. Um, We meet in a home if one lady can't get out. Um, Just lots of different little things. And most importantly, we give each other grace when we do miss. And it's so worth the effort and additional business of schedule to still be able to meet. When I don't feel like going out some days, but I do anyway, (laughs) I never regret it, but always come home so grateful I did. I'm so grateful to God for this group of ladies uh, and all of you here who keep me accountable and this body of believers who all have become like family to me too. Not just for me, but I know Sam and all our children feel the same way. Love each of you all and have felt loved by all of you. So thank you. All right. Uh, So almost exactly eight years ago, my family moved to Minnesota from Chicago during the most incredible whirlwind seven-month period of our lives. Over the seven months, I had gotten laid off, found a new job, uprooted our family, left the only church we'd ever known, moved twice, and bought our very first home. During this time, we saw God's power at work, and it was all we could do to keep up with how fast and how powerfully God chose to flex and show his sovereign power. But when the dust settled, both literally and figuratively, I sat downstairs in our new home, wondering what on earth just happened and why God put us here. I still distinctly remember feeling a tremendous sense of uncertainty about our future here in Minnesota. What's our purpose for being here? Both Grace and I had come from long and complicated church backgrounds, and while we both came to accept Jesus during this time, it wasn't until we started attending CRC that God started to complete the picture of Christian community in our lives. There used to be a running joke between Grace and I where she'd tell me that I needed more friends, and I responded that I don't need friends. The truth was that I didn't feel the need for friends or any sort of Christian community. I was perfectly happy hiding my sins and failing miserably at trying to white-knuckle my way through them. Several people here are very well aware of my general aversion to conversation of most kinds. So the thought of speaking about deep and weighty things seemed like a lot of work, and repenting sins sounded unbearable. But wouldn't you know it, God has a sense of humor, and he led me to a church where people want to talk to you all the time. The very first time I came to CRC, I came alone, and I did my best to remain incognito, hiding in the shadows, while I checked out this brand-new church plant. And just as I was trying to sneak out unnoticed, Jenny Lensett cornered me 
and started talking to me and saying all these challenging things like, we're so glad you're here. <laughs> and asking me about my family and other tough questions. <sighs> Next week, I came back trying to accomplish the same disappearing act. And this time, it was Nancy Kesting asking me more questions and being all warm and welcoming. So through the people here at CRC, God taught me that Christian community wasn't about numbers, attendance, and goals, as, had, as it had been in the past. It's God's people showing care and affection for one another. It's God's people caring enough to wanting to get to know each other in more than just superficial ways, but in meaningful ways, where the gospel, not accomplishments and works, is at the center of our relationships. And for me, within, from within these gospel-saturated relational connections, God pushed me to have conversations with people talk about God and the gospel, listen to each other's struggles, and ultimately share my own sins so that healing and restoration can begin. Like I said before, conversations are not my thing, and sharing mushy stuff definitely isn't my thing. But I can't praise God enough and thank him enough for the godly men who have come alongside me through our small groups, life groups, and DNA groups. These men drag me out of bed on Friday mornings to pray and eat McDonald's breakfast together. These men peer pressured me into coming out in the evenings to have a beer or lemonade and iced tea, in my case, to talk about our struggles, our victories, and the ways the Lord has led us in the Word, in areas where they needed prayers. They showed their vulnerable sides and in return showed grace and encouragement to one another. And it was within this new place of Christian community that God softened my heart and led me to confess my long-standing sin of lust and all its related effects. It had been a fire that burned hot and close in my heart for a very long time. And all it took was one glance in that direction for me to suffer its burns. But through confession, brotherly encouragement, and grace, the gospel truth of forgiveness to those who repent, God has worked in my soul and pushed his flame further and further away from me. In the past, business trips were terrible. But now I let my DNA group know when I'm leaving and when I'm coming back, and they graciously keep me accountable. And besides this, these men have graciously also but persistently encouraged me to tease out all that's been laying dormant in my heart surrounding my fatherlessness. I keep telling them I'm fine, and they keep saying, I don't think so. And it was true. I wasn't fine, and it, and it, and it led me to share more mushy stuff to my family about being fatherless. And God has been opening my eyes more about how I can fit into God's plan in all this. Both Grace and I are so thankful to this body and the community of believers who come alongside us. It has done remarkable things in our souls, and for that I cannot express enough gratitude. We're excited for all that God will do in the future, especially in our children. We are thankful for a community where our kids can see, their, see and hear the gospel from other voices besides ours. So if I didn't say it enough, I'd like to say again, I thank the good Lord for this community of believers. The work that God has done through this community has been life-giving for us in ways beyond anything we could have imagined when we first moved. So it turns out that I did need friends, and conversations weren't so bad after all. Thank you. Amen. That is so good. Thank you, uh, Sam. Thank you, Grace, for sharing. I know there's so many other, uh, so many other believers in this room who would have similar testimonies, uh, and it's a fearful thing, uh, initially to open up to close, robust community. It is fearful. You know the gospel frees you up to do it, because the gospel says your Father receives you just as you are. 
He accepts you just the way you are. He sees all of your brokenness, all of your sins, all of your pains. And He loves you. And when that gospel coin begins to drop into your heart, it begins to free you up to be honest about who you are. If my Father loves me, then I can be honest with you about who I am. So man, just so great to see how the Lord has worked in the Jang's lives. He wants to work that way in your life too. I'd encourage you to seek a true biblical community. If this is your church family, I would really encourage you to seek it here and pursue it here. We can talk with you about ways that might work for you. If you're in a life group now, keep working at it. It's not perfect. You know when it's going to be perfect? When you see Jesus face to face. (laughs) You will have a perfect human community then, I can tell you that. Until then, it's not going to be perfect. And do you know you can have all kinds of things in your heart that are going to resist community, all all kinds of things in your heart that are going to try to convince you why you shouldn't be close to these people. And man, please fight against that by the power of the Holy Spirit. And the Lord will work in, in your life. So man, may God help us with our community. Uh, we have the privilege this morning of receiving the Lord's Supper. Uh, the Lord's Supper reminds us of the death of Christ. The bread represents His body, which was broken for sinners like you and me. The cup represents His blood, which was poured out for the forgiveness of sins. And you may not have thought of this before, but, but do you know that this Lord's Supper here actually has quite a bit to do with this theme of community? Do you know that many people call the Lord's Supper communion? Because when you take this Lord's Supper, you are communing with God. The Bible says that it is an actual participation, an actual koinonia fellowship with the body and the blood of Jesus Christ. But you know what? God didn't intend for the Lord's Supper just to be a communion with Him. No, God also intended that the Lord's Supper would be a communion with one another. That's why the Christian church has always taken the Lord's Supper together as a body. That's why the Word instructs us to be mindful of the body when we take the Lord's Supper. This is not just a communion with God. It's a communion with the other members of the body of Christ within our local church. It's a celebration of the communion of saints. So man, may you be reminded of that this morning as you receive the Lord's Supper. We practice what is called open communion. That means you don't have to be a member of this church to receive the Lord's Supper. We would ask that you would be a member of Christ, though. That you you would have repented from your sins. You now have a living faith in Christ. If that's you, uh, then then this Lord's Supper is for you. If that's not you, uh, Jesus Christ is not truly your Lord, not truly your Master. I would just ask you uh, to abstain from the Lord's Supper today and, and just... Consider where you are and repent of your sin, trust in Christ, and then come and tell us about it and take the Lord's Supper uh, next time. Uh, We have four stations up front here you can see in just a minute. I'll invite you to come up. You can receive both the bread and the cup at one of these stations here and then go sit back down and hold them. If you're not able to come up front, just raise your hand. Pastor Thomas and I will walk around and be happy to serve you at your seat. I'll go ahead and invite the worship team. Uh, Pastor Thomas and the servers up front at this time.